Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always, here on Close Reads, I am joined. I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. I am joined. I also am joined. How's it going? You know, I, held, I held my breath a little bit when you went to introduce us, since you've been doing these tie-ins with the stories each week, and I was like, "Oh man, what is what is he about to say?" I did think about how, ab- how am I about to be introduced? Right. I did the think about it. Angelina Stanford. I'm just glad you didn't go there. I gotta say, I went through a couple of options, and they all felt a little bit mean, and probably like I shouldn't shouldn't go that direction. So this week, you're off the hook. Phew. Phew. <laughs> well, today is Friday, April fourteenth, two thousand and seventeen. It is Good Friday. Um, we are recording um, as as always on a Friday, and this episode will be going up on Monday, the day after Easter. So um, this is an interesting story to be talking about. Dare I say a good story to be talking about on Good Friday? An appropriate story to be talking about on Good Friday, shall we say, um, with listening the day after Easter. So I suspect that there will be plenty of tie-in options for, for that uh, as we discuss the story. Um, quickly, though, Tim, Angelina, what's new? In, in, in 30 seconds, Angelina, what's new that you want to share with the podcast listeners out there? I'm, I'm headed to Orlando next month, and I'm hoping to uh, meet some more listeners there. Yes, so she is going to be speaking at our regional conference in Orlando, and I'm glad you mentioned that because we would love to have more people there. There is space available, um, plenty plenty of space, actually, uh, for this conference. So um, if you are in Orlando, Florida, or Florida in general, or Georgia, or South Carolina, or Alabama, or, you know, want to travel, please join us. In fact, most of the people who have signed up as of today are from not Florida. Um, no kidding. Yeah, it's a little weird. We've got Californians and Coloradoans, Coloradans, Col- Coloradoites. Um, uh, See, now that puts like that. a lot of pressure on me. I feel like they got to get a plane tickets worth out of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's why we brought other people too. Um, <laughs> oh, thank goodness. I mean, it's not not all the pressure's not on you. We figure the more the more chances that people have to get something good out of it, the better. Um, the the percentages increase. We we have faith in you though. We really do. We have faith in you. Really? I mean, wow, that was just like the worst possible answer to my insecurity there. Don't worry, Angelina, then go see other people. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, no, it should put less pressure on you. Um so so join us. We you know, uh we uh we would love to have you to have you there. Um there is there is still plenty of space, so if you are on the fence, um please please join us. We would we would love to meet you there and um, we would love to, you know, have some of these close reads conversations around lunch or something like that at, at the event. Tim, David, am I allowed to give a shout out to a couple of my friends that are going to be at the Orlando conference? Sure, go Is ahead. That, By all means, I suspect that I, I, I can name a couple of them right away. You probably can, Rudy and Susan Ridelhuber. I regret that I will not see you in Orlando. I grew up with Rudy and, um. 
I was around Rudy and Susan when they were getting to know each other before they got married. Oh, and you were their third wheel. That's so cute. I was. I was sitting <laughs> on the couch with them, and Rudy was like, buddy, do you mind screaming? <laughs> hey, what are you guys going to talk about? So, hey, do you guys want to talk about literature? Where are you going? Why are you leaving? Best man ever. <laughs> just about to put on this Doctor Who marathon. Where are you going? <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, so yeah, I talked to Rudy a couple of days ago. Rudy has been instrumental in helping um, get this I'm sure this has. event set up, and he's helping, trying to help spread the word and all that. So, thanks to Rudy for uh, for coming through for us. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, Orlando. Be there, be square, or whatever the kids are. What do kids say these days? I don't know. I don't know, but people should come. I need someone to hang out with if Tim's not going to be there. I need to be entertained. I, I used to coach high school sports and teach high schoolers, so like I was kind of up on the stuff that the kids were saying. Now I hang out with a five-year-old, like like most of those things. are The kids' five-year-olds are not hip. So, you <laughs> oh, know. it's coming. It's yeah, coming. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an, I feel like I'm an old person now. Uh, <laughs> very out of the loop. Now I hang out with, like, my dad. Chuck. <laughs> the kings Matt, of slang and Matt, right Matt Bianco. We'll change all of that in in Austin, Texas, David. All right, sweet. All right. Well, anyway, we're here to talk about Revelation, uh, the not the penultimate, but the third from the last story in uh, Everything That Rises Must Converge. But quickly, before we do that, we need to say a quick word from our friends over at Roman Roads Media. As you know, they are publishers of Classical Christian Curriculum, which is designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops, and they are back with a giveaway for Cersei Podcast listeners, just like they were on the last episode. So each episode this month and in the month of May, they're going to be giving away one of 16 units from Wes Callahan's Old Western Culture series, a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western Civ. It's complete with workbooks, discussion questions, readers, all that. Uh, and Wes Callahan draws from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of Western civilization, integrating history, lit, theology, politics, philosophy, and so much more. So here's how to enter that giveaway. If you listened last week or you listened to the episode of The Commons that is going up today with, that Angelina was featured on, then you know that all you got to do is head over to the Cersei Facebook page. And when this episode is posted there, leave a comment saying which unit of old Western culture you would choose if you win. So head over to romanroadsmedia.com, browse the selection there. There's 16 different units. Browse that selection, pick the one you would want, and then post that as a comment on that Facebook post. Uh, one of the comments will be drawn at random three days after the episode is posted there. So um, you know, do that sometime between now um, and Thursday because this, ep- this podcast is going up on Monday. They will draw on Thursday. Um, and again, to browse the available titles in the Old Western Culture series, head over to RomanRoadsMedia.com. And thanks to David and Daniel and their whole crew over there for sponsoring again and for being uh, great friends to us. So we really appreciate that. Um, appreciate them helping make this show um, and the other shows on our network this month possible. All right, y'all. Let's talk Revelation. Um, oh, yes. This is my favorite, by the way. Really? Yeah, you know, I was thinking, David, if – you you said that Greenleaf is the one that you use to introduce students to Flannery O'Connor. For me, this is the one to introduce students to Flannery O'Connor. Me too. This is the one I teach. Huh. This is the one that Gutenberg selected. This in A Good Man is Hard to Find. Which and is this not is the one that Jonathan Rogers said to start with, too. The guy who wrote the uh, huh. Flannery O'Connor spiritual biography. David, this surprises you. I choose. I, I choose to be skeptical of this idea. Um, <laughs> How come? 
Um, I have lots of reasons. <laughs> uh, I think that, man, the, see, we could spend the whole conversation. Do you think it's too heavy-handed? Do you think it's too heavy-handed? I, Is that why you don't like it? I do think that. Well, no, 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 no. Let me. Okay, I think it's too heavy-handed to be the story that I introduce students to Flannery oh. O'Connor with. I don't think that it's necessarily too heavy-handed as a piece of art. I think it treads that line, though. Like, I think it's really close to being too heavy-handed and that it lacks um, the subtlety of, say, the lame shall enter first. Oh, it's definitely um, not subtle. Or, I mean, you're going to yeah. get hit over the head with and, it. Boom, and boom. that may be... <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. All right. We're done. Let's go. That's it. <laughs> um. And good night. So I read something interesting, um, which was that so she had been hospitalized, right? And right before she wrote this story. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently at that point, she, she knew she did not have much longer to live. And so these last few stories, she kind of threw everything that she had been trying to accomplish subtly in the other stories into into this one. And so part of the reason why I choose it is because it really is her showing her hand. It's her saying, this is what I'm trying to do in all of my stories. I'm trying to hit you over the head with a book and trying to, you know, give you this moment where you're going to have a vision of what life really is. So, yeah. And like that, that makes total sense to me. It makes sense, you know, that that's her approach. It makes sense why we would want students to read it. Um, and and I do like this story a lot. I, I mean, like I find it very enjoyable to read and very thought provoking and very challenging. But my only question is more of a pedagogical one. So, so both of you, I mean, we need to have Jonathan Rogers on. But to both of you, why is that kind of approach that she takes there? Like, why is that kind of a story? What you would choose first? Like, why do you want students to see so obviously right off the bat? everything she's trying to do. Well, I guess for me, I only cover one Flannery O'Connor story. So, Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I took a Flannery O'Connor class and this, this, this is for you, David, we started the class with Greenleaf. That was the first story. You taught it or you took it? No, I took a class. Okay. Did you also, did you, was it a class you taught? Did you take a class you taught? That sounds like something. I taught it, and I was the student, the kind of, and I made an A. It was great. It sounds like something you would do, i got to be honest. Oh, uh. <laughs> I gave myself a teaching certificate afterwards and teacher of the year. It was a banner year for me. <laughs> Parent of the year, I'm sure, as well. Um, Tim, so you no, did... No, that was revoked. Oh. <laughs> Tried. <laughs> so, Tim, you, um, did you, is this the only story you teach, or you said you also read A Good Man, It's Hard to Find? Yeah, we read a good man is hard to find. Also, so if, I, I if like you're this. choosing, if you're choosing a good man is hard to find as your your other one, then I get why you do this one first. But I'm really interested at the idea that um, that we want our students to be able to see that clearly what a writer of this caliber is doing. Um, that we want it to be that obvious to them. Like, don't we want them to have to do more work when they're reading? Like, experience it more fully. I I think that that the student would have to do, they still have to do work with revelation. Okay. Um, I just think that her, this story for me is kind of, it's the pattern of all the other stories, but it's put in its starkest terms. It's almost like putting training wheels on so that you can take them off for the other stories. We see there's a moment of grace. 
it's accompanied by violence. The um, person who brings about violence is a character that we're not that appears by all indications to be kind of in league with the devil or, or demonic or something like that. And yet this character sees something in Mrs. Turpin, the main character that Mrs. Turpin cannot see in herself. And it has all of the kind of wonderful flavoring of Henry O'Connor, the deep South kind of view of, Christian religion as a civilizing influence, but not as a um, a radical cure. It has um, it just has all of those. It has the kind of uh, covert, barely under the surface. It's not even under the surface. What am I talking about? Racism that Mrs. Turban kind of inhabits, and the rest of her um, conversants inhabit also. It just has you know- everything that makes Flannery O'Connor great. I think the simplest and the clearest kind of pattern of all the stories that I've read. No, that makes sense. I think I, I definitely agree with you on that. We no, need... I love what you said about taking the training wheels off. That's that's the way I look at it as well. That was great. That was a good analogy. Well, why, or you could just because... be like a dog and throw it into the water. Yes. Think about it. <laughs> it's true. You could. You could. And if the student is willing to wrestle with it, then the student is going to get it and it's going to be a deeper, more enjoyable experience for them, but more edifying if experience I, for them. If for the sake of conversation, just because I'm feeling argumentative today, and we need some oh, drama. Oh, someone like you. Um, yeah. <laughs> couldn't, 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 couldn't I say, though, that um, it doesn't – whether or not the student feels like wrestling with it, it's our job to, job to give them the tools to wrestle with it. So even if it's more challenging and difficult and not as abundantly obvious what she's doing – that doesn't mean that we shouldn't throw our students into that deep water and then help them swim. No, not at all. Well, I think you can make a case for both of those, honestly. I'm going to take the cop-out answer and say that the anthology I, – I, I've only ever taught Flannery O'Connor in a university. Okay. Um, and, and so we had a we had an anthology, and that's the study that was in there. <laughs> so that's my, that's my cop-out answer. <laughs> Fair enough. David, wouldn't you – I think that you were saying <clears> – <throat> shouldn't we as teachers be able to provide them the tools to kind of like really take on a very difficult project? Shouldn't we be the ones that provide them with the ability to swim in so that if they they're thrown in the deep end, they can at least kind of like keep their head above water and breathe. Um, I think that part of the reason that revelation is so compelling is that I think the work that the teacher has to do would actually be minimized and the student could I think with revelation, train themselves how to teach, uh, excuse me, train themselves how to read with less input from the teacher. Whereas mm. even something like a good man is hard to find. I think the teacher would need to be more involved in that story. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I get that. And, and I, quite honestly, I'm picking nits, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's an interesting conversation. Like, for, I, I imagine there's a lot of listeners who are who teach high schoolers or homeschool high schoolers, um, or even just want to have a book club conversation, and they're trying to decide where do you start. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you could approach it. And so I think that it's a really interesting conversation that we could probably spend the whole show on. Um, and everybody has to approach it a little bit differently. But one thing that I think is going to affect how you teach this story in particular is, as you mentioned, the overt racism 
in it. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I want to talk about that right off the bat. It's kind of like kind of hangs Good, over the I story. Hoping, I was hoping we would because when I taught this in a university, that was an issue that I had to deal with. Some of the African American students in the class were very unhappy with the use of the N word in the story. And that makes total sense, rightly so. Oh, absolutely. So, so then, how do you? I'll ask you just from your experience. How did you? How did you approach those students, um, and and the class in general? Um, and just discuss that. I mean, how, what did you do to deal with that, to deal with that problem? Well, I, I asked them if just by virtue of the word being in the story, did that make the story bad? Or could we take a step back and say, what does the author intend to do with the use of this word? And, and I mm. asked the question of, um, I asked them, if you were trying to write a story in which you condemned racism, how would you let the audience know this character is a racist if you didn't have them acting like a racist. Right. What, you know, what, did, what were the answers? I would, I would Those are great uh, questions, Angelina. Um, the, the answers varied. Some mm-hmm. people said, you know, well, just say she's a racist. And then half the class, thank God, half the class groaned. It was like, that's not how you tell a story. <laughs> and here's the bad guy. He's got mm-hmm. the black hat, right? Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. I, mo- most people really were, the vast majority of the class really was able to, to accept that argument and just take a step back and to say she's, they all agreed that she was clearly condemning racism mm-hmm. um, and that the character was wrong to be thinking this way and speaking this way. Um, there was one girl in the class who was a real holdout. Actually, I don't think she read the story, to be honest, because she had a reputation with me of not reading the stories. She turned in some hilarious papers to me that when I read, I thought, oh, I know exactly which movie you watched, but you did not read the book. Um, <laughs> so she may not have actually read the story and may have just been making an issue out of it to, to, to cover that. But she was the one holdout that I could not convince. She just kept shaking her head saying, no, no, that, sh- that word can't be in a story. What do you guys think about asking the question kind of in preparation for reading? Um, is a racist character beyond redemption? Oh, that's a good question. That, yeah, that's it. That would, I would certainly love to hear what, what students would say. And I, in particular, you know, I think I would be interested in hearing what students who have experienced real racism would say, um, mm-hmm. and how they would, how they would approach this story, because I think it's pretty safe to say that the three of us, understand it what, what it feels like only in the abstract yeah. yes and I'm so, so glad you're bringing that up I thought about that a long time today like you know almost that so I put myself in the position of teaching this story right mm-hmm. but I don't want to lecture these students that they shouldn't be offended at this word I mean it, well it is no they should be That's they should the point. be offended right yeah and and I guess I also was wondering too um how much has our culture shifted in a, in a good way, right? Mm-hmm. That this is no longer common language, right? So it's almost like this word has more of a shock value now than when she wrote it. Do you think, do you think that's right? Well, I think yeah, so. yeah, I was going to say that um, <clears throat> I, I was thinking earlier about while I was reading it, if some, if someone came to me and said that they found a long lost Flannery O'Connor story or say a William Faulkner story or something, and brought it to me and said, "Would this? Would Cersei like to publish this in their magazine?" And that word was as prevalent in this, you know, this theoretical long lost story as it is in Revelation. What would we do? Um, Gosh. And, 
And it's an, you oh, know, yeah. now what I think, a great question. Goodness. And I, I did not come up with an answer. Um, like on the, my first instinct was, I don't, you know, like maybe we wouldn't do it at all. And then I was like, I don't know, because she's trying to do important things here. But you know, the braver thing for her was not at the time was not using the word like that word was used in all kinds of fiction. But the, the, the thing that she did that was different was she condemned its use, um, in a way that was unique. Um, and that's, and things, stories like this, you know, in the South in particular received, there was something of an uproar about them. Um, so yeah. I don't know. It's interesting that we are, the word has appeared in a, couple of the other stories that we've read but this is the first time we've highlighted it as being um as offensive as it is and i think it's because when mrs turpin says it she means it and i think in the other times it was more a is the right word a denotative term hmm. to refer to um i'm not talking about the white person i'm talking about the black person she just they in the previous stories, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was being used to denote characters, but in this story, our main character is a racist, and she's using it as a term of condemnation. Absolutely. Not every she's constantly time, but... asserting her superiority to everyone. Yeah. From the, the moment, from the first oh, yeah. like, three sentences, she is, is your person in her world. I think oh, yeah. that, I think Flannery O'Connor is just it's brilliant, superb right? in this story at Tim, showing. Tim, say that again. Her, the line, it, did, it did cut off. The line, the line cut off. You, what you said there cut off. So from the very third line, she did what now? From the first three lines of the story, we know that Mrs. Turbin Tur- Turpin set herself up as a class above, above everyone that she. Yeah, yeah. Her self-talk. I, I mean, I could maybe. And she's even physically big when she walks in. It's so great. Yes. The way Flannery sets the scene, right? She's like bigger than the the waiting room. Second sentence. Turpin stood, looming at the head of the magazine table, set in the center of it, a living demonstration that the room was inadequate and ridiculous. Hmm. This is her self-talk. In the second sentence, she has entered a queen in her coterie is that am i using that the right way no absolutely she orders her husband to sit down which he obediently does and he doesn't talk and you know she talks for him when people say so what's wrong with you and she answers for him and you know she's just this is a woman that knows her place in the world right or she thinks she does she's Uh got everything perfectly ordered in her mind well and that's you know you know one thing that o'connor is doing here is showing that 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 racism is it's it's a symptom of or or an example of many things that are going on with her. It's not yes. she's not just racist, and that doesn't oh, yeah. di- that doesn't diminish her racism because the racism is front and center here. Um, but she, you know, there's also class issues and the way she treats her husband and the way she her pride, um, the way she thinks about Jesus. You know, all these different things. Are, they're all symptoms of a larger, you know. Um, Absolutely, thing, malady. Thing, yeah, malady going Spiritual on. Spiritual malady. Yeah, they're all symptoms of a of of a poison that's inside of her. I mean, really, who lays awake at night saying, "Thank you, Jesus, you didn't make me like all these other people." And... Did, did you guys notice that all of her references to her kind of place in the world were not because of uh, her achievement? 
Well, I, that's, I'm exaggerating slightly. So many of her references to her position in the world, basically at the top of the ladder, were because she was created that way by Jesus, mm-hmm. that God created her in a certain way. I found that so interesting. And, it, and it's kind of some of her other characters and other stories pride themselves in kind of the viewpoint that they have or the accomplishments that they right. have. You're right, like Mrs. May, her, right? Or any like of the Mrs. young people. May. But for Mrs. Turpin, it's different. It's on the great chain of being, Jesus was kind enough to place her at the top, and she is just so thankful. Yeah. Now this... Which makes the close so fascinating. I mean, we'll get there. I don't want to give it away. But the ending of the story is <laughs> she gets a picture of kind of that great chain of being actually recast in actual vibrantly like biblical Christian terms. She sees the way things actually are. And and she's yeah, she's not at the front is the way that she thought she's not at the top of the ladder the way that she thought she was. Hmm. Angelina, this, you were gonna say something. Yeah, um the racism in this story is the racism that I grew up in. And that's part of the reason why this story is special to me. Some of the stories I, I, I think, oh, I have never run across this. I don't know what this is. This, this is the racism I grew up in. This um, thanking God that he made you white and believing that that's, there's some kind of, uh, what am I trying to say? Some, some kind of like providential, uh, um, mm-hmm. quote unquote, biblical explanation for racism. I mean, I had it explained to me. I, I don't even know if I want to say on the air some of the things that were were said to me, but but the very strong, not implication, but outright statement that God had created black people that way, and and white people are supposed to kind of take care of them, because they can't take care of themselves, and that's just the way that, not just this, the way of the world, but this is the way God made it. This is the way God instituted it. Um, so yeah, oh, it's just so Angelina. I know I I don't know that I heard the same conversations that you heard, but what you're describing does not sound unfamiliar as someone who grew up in the South as I grew up in the South. Doesn't it just, when you hear, when you like recount those stories to yourself or those conversations to yourself, doesn't it just like make your flesh kind of crawl? It does. That's why I'm saying I'm ashamed to actually say the things on the air. They're so shameful that anybody would, would try to use God as right. a justification for, you know, mistreating the people he's created to say that he created. So like, I was taught, you know, that, that, that black people were cursed by God. And I feel like that's the undertones when she's thanking Jesus that she, he didn't make her that way. You know, like she's not, she doesn't come out and say they're cursed, but she definitely thinks she's blessed, right? Her whiteness is a blessing that she got mm-hmm. from God. And her not like white, trashiness. Tra- what trashiness. Yeah. Yeah. So her, 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 uh, not just her, her race, but her class. Which you know, definitely, I heard all of that too. Lots of lots of white trash talk growing mm-hmm. up as well. Uh, so so hey, yeah, I, I just I, this this world just rings so true, and I can I can tell you that she's blind to it. She's absolutely blind to it. This is just the air she breathes. She 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 truly does believe she's a good person, and aren't I nice to everybody? I bring them ice water. Can't do a thing with them. You know, they'll lie, they'll cheat, they're still they're so right. lazy. But I'm nice. I mean, th- I heard these things. I heard these things in the modern world said all the time. Hey, I have a question, but I wonder 
if I could tag the question at the end of a short synopsis of the story. It's such a simple story to to wrap up. You guys want me to do that now? You are the the uh, resident uh, what rapper? <laughs> Say it. I'm the resident rapper. You you, are, you yeah. Tim are the resident rapper. So rap away. <laughs> MC so, Gutenberg right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's ba- it's a really simple story in that we've got more or less two settings. The first is in a doctor's office. Uh, Mrs. Turpin is escorting her beleaguered husband, Mr. Turpin, because he got kicked in the shin by a cow, by a horse. Cow. Um, And they're going to see the doctor. They sit down, and Mrs. Turpin sits near a young woman who, um, by, from the very beginning seems to have it in from Mrs. Turpin. She seems to just despise her before Mrs. Turpin even opens her mouth, or maybe after Mrs. Turpin opens her mouth. Uh, Mrs. Turpin proceeds, as they're waiting for the doctor to call Mr. Turpin in to be examined, to basically place every single person that's in the waiting room to place them kind of in her hierarchy of value. This person is white trash this person has class this person is lowborn so she kind of puts everybody in their place and she proceeds to have a conversation with the only woman that she thinks kind of like is on her level as far as class they have an ongoing conversation and during this conversation this young woman who has acne who has just a vicious look about her is glaring at mrs turban turpin finally in the middle of the conversation, she attacks Mrs. Turpin. She throws a book at her, hits her in the head, knocks her down. And when she's kind of, when Mrs. Turpin recovers, the young woman says, what's the line that she says? Um, you're a warthog from hell. You're a warthog straight from hell, right. And this, after Mrs. Turpin goes home and recovers, you know, after the attack, this line gets stuck in her mind and she cannot get rid of it. And she proceeds to have a conversation with God asking her, why did this woman say this to me? And then she proceeds to ask questions like, do you wish that I was born white trash? Do you wish that I was born low? And finally the story culminates with Mrs. Turpin taking care of her hogs, kind of washing them down and Nature, like we've seen in other Flannery O'Connor stories, nature begins to change and take on this mysterious hue as Mrs. Turpin has a vision. And I think we could probably save the vision. We could actually like read the vision um, later on in the discussion. Mrs. Turpin has a vision of where she actually is in the created hierarchy of being. And that's how our story closes. So the question coming out of that mm-hmm. was... Um, when Mrs. Turpin begins having the conversation with God and she's asking him, why did you, why did, why did you make me this way? Why did she compare me to a warthog of hell? Do you think that Mrs. Turpin is actually ignorant or do you think that she's willfully ignorant when she asks those questions? To me, this read like Shepherd in the last story. I thought a lot about what David said about the, the long sort of gradual repentance that Shepherd comes to, and, and I and I felt like that was happening here again. She gets hit on the head, and and 
she's not so blind that she doesn't know it's a message. It's interesting to me that she keeps using that word message. Right? Why, did you, why did you send me this message? Why did you send me this message? Like she's angrily resisting it. Much like we saw with Shepard, I haven't done anything wrong. I've got nothing to repent about. Mm. But the mm. more she says it, right, she keeps being being led to that moment where she where she sees. So I I don't maybe I'm not ready to say she's entirely willfully ignorant, but she's definitely resisting. And she knows it's a message. She's not thinking she does. it's a lance encounter. Like she's mad at God for this message. Absolutely. David, do you think she's willfully ignorant or just good old-fashioned? She just can't see it another way. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think <clears throat> I think the one thing that we haven't touched on yet is I think that she's actually a fairly complicated character. Um, I think that in some ways she's one of the more complicated, you know, and tag protagonist that we've had, whatever you talk about when you're combining those two things together. Um, in, in what way? I want to hear more about this. Um, I think Ralph, you know, Ralph Wood writes about this a little bit towards the end of, of um, the Clayton O'Connor on the Christ Haunted South. And he writes about how, yeah, she is racist and she is cruel and she is judgmental. Um, and she's complacent, um, I think is a word he uses, but that she also is surprisingly oh, at least open or aware of the existence of the spiritual mm. and that that's mm-hmm. and that that is why, in the end, the vision that she has can can leave a, the mark that it does um and so i don't I, I just don't know. I hadn't thought yeah, of the I word ignorant as being how I would think about her. I think that she's poisoned. Um, and then I mm-hmm. think that that point, like her eyes have been poisoned such that she's blind to certain things. Um, and so I don't know. I hadn't thought about her in as, as ignorant being the word that I would use. And so I, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question until I think about it a little bit more, to be honest with you. I love that you use the word open. Cause I actually wrote that in the margin. Uh, well, one thing that I think, O'Connor is really do, doing really interestingly is that throughout most of the beginning of the story, there is a extru- everything about the story is claustrophobic. Um, yes. So if you look, for example, the room, the room is not going to work um, for her because she, you know she's looming in the room, which makes the room mm-hmm. feel small. It's inadequate. Um. um I'm trying to remember. Um, and it ends with the reverse image of that, right? right. She's so small and the universe well, is so huge. The first time we see that, that there's all, I mean, we could spend a lot of the story going through and identifying all the different words that, um, that reference things being tight and small or mm-hmm. being, um, uh, surrounded or, or whatever. There's, there's several of them. The, she talks in particular about how she dreams that they were all crammed together in a box car. Um, which is like, yeah. that's that is the single mm-hmm. most dark moment of the whole story. Oh my goodness! Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it, her her racism and her her um judgment 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 just whatever the word is yeah yeah judgmentalism I guess yeah builds and builds and builds to that point. Um, and I, I want to talk about that passage at some point, but then the first time that we get a shift in that metaphor is actually let's see if I can find it here. 
It's when she gets hit in the head, huh? Yeah, it's when the girl... I'm trying to find, where does the girl hit her? Because it specifically 499 says... 499, mine. Okay, um... The girl's eyes stopped rolling and focused on her, and they seemed a much lighter blue than before, as if a door that had been tightly closed mm-hmm. behind them was now open to admit light and air, and Mrs. Turpin's head cleared and her power of motion returns. And so that's the moment, I think, when things begin to change for her. So that openness becomes more active when she gets hit on the head. And so where so O'Connor creates that sense very actively in terms of how the story is told by making everything claustrophobic before that. And then she gets hit. And then that ultimately culminates in being out in nature and, and it expanding even further. And that's, it's going on inside of her, going on inside of her as well. Go go ahead. Well, it's interesting that she uses some of the same language that she used in the last um, story because Mrs. Turpin also leans forward like Norton did. And and, and that's where I wrote she's open, right? So she gets hit in the head, but she leans forward. She leans into it. Mm -hmm. She has that moment where she says there was no doubt in her mind that the girl did know her, knew her in some intense and personal way beyond time and place and condition. What you got to say to me, she asked. I mean, this is is an open character, right? Even if she's angry about it, to lean in and to ask someone who's just attacked you, what, what is it you're trying to say to me? One thing that um, that Ralph Wood also mentions in the book, and I, I, I'm totally paraphrasing, I, I, I can't say it as well as he says, but you know, she, O'Connor talks about how the South is Christ-haunted and not Christ-centered, mm. which is where that title of his book comes from, obviously. But he talks about how she is an ex- a perfect example of that. Ruby Turpin is a perfect example of that, where because the South is Christ haunted, she has this awareness of Christian ease, so to speak awareness of what, of like of Jesus as a person. Um, like he is in some sense, uh, poisoned though it is a part of her life, right? A part of her awareness. Yeah. If, and because of that, she's Christ haunted and that point, you know, but then because she's Christ haunted, she can, that can flip and, and, the seeds have been planted that she can be Christ centered, so to speak. But that hauntedness, which kind of looms, looms large in her life, even though her perspective on it is poisoned can be, can be redeemed by that vision later on. And without that hauntedness, you know, that, that, that kind of ghostly faith that she has, that vision can't be as meaningful as it would be otherwise, or at least mm. it, it works in that way. I'm, you know, God can still reach us even if we're not Christ haunted, so to speak. But that it, that is the seed for um, the vision to be meaningful later. Which, and that's I thought that was a that's a really fascinating observation, or at least a read of the story by Ralph Wood. Yeah, it is, and it explains why she can go from so rapidly toward a a spiritual vision at the end, whereas. It's difficult to imagine somebody like Shepard going from to having a spiritual vision. His his vision, his understanding, Shepard's, mm-hmm. um, is more like a revolution of his ethic. It's partly a revolution of the way that he sees, and that's what that's what O'Connor really emphasizes. But he is in love with his son now, uh, is Shepard, and it seems like that's. I just can't imagine Shepard having the sort of almost like apocalyptic vision that 
Mrs. Turpin has. It'd just be too soon for somebody like Shepard. Yeah. He's just I so like mired the, in the scientific. The apocalyptic field. is a good point there. That is apocalyptic vision. I like that. And and she's a she's a real counterpoint to Mrs. May, right? Who's so closed off that it has to take some violent moment for her. Yes, mm. that's right. Mrs. May is so closed off. You're right. I I not. I think Mrs. Turpin just appeared to me. I think she just gets under my skin more than most of the characters do. Can I? She does to me too, and I just skin, think it's because I'm closer skin. to her in reality. Well, you know? exactly. Like I've rubbed elbows with Mrs. Turpin before. <laughs> Can I can I venture something else without being without judging the two of you? Oh, um, oh, oh, oh so okay. I think what might be happening, you know, overt racism aside, I think what's going on here is for people like us who grew up around ostensibly anyway, or grew up around the faith, who have who are in our own way Christ haunted. Mm-hmm. Um she we can see ourselves I think in her, or at least there is something of ourselves in her. You know, we are, you know, as I said, the overt racism aside, um, you know, we, we're not going to speak that way. We're not going to hold the opinions that she does, but some of the, but that doesn't mean that we aren't in our own way. At right. A lot of the time as Christians, not pharisaical about the way we look at other people. Right. Like I'll admit that yeah. sometimes, you know, I, I like, I was reading it and, and the moments when she's like judging the white trash people, so to speak, I have to admit that I found myself like realizing, you know, I don't think that I'm, I'm not going to be a racist like she's, she is, but I'm sure that there are times when I've looked at people who are of lower class or whatever and thought, no, to, my, thought, thought to myself, especially if you live in, I mean, you live anywhere, but if you live in the rural, rural ish South, there's people like that, that are just that are true to the story that she is saying here, even in 2017. And it's, it's easy sometimes, or, or we see a guy, we see a homeless person or, you know, wherever you live, you can yeah. see people that you think, thank God, that's not me. You know, it, this and, is so right. It, it's her judgmentalism to me that gets under my skin because I'm so judgmental. I, it's funny that you bring up a homeless person because I will catch myself all the time, especially kind of living in the neighborhood where I live, um, the homeless population in Eugene, Oregon is probably per capita. It's through the roof. It's absolutely through the roof. And I will be walking down the street. I'll be going to, you know, my coffee shop to do my work and I'll see a homeless person and I will just instantly make a judgment. Well, they're probably there because they made a bunch of bad choices. I'm like, who are you, Tim? Who are you? You know nothing about this person. You know nothing about like what happened to them that brought them to this point. And like and I'm he, somehow um, superior to that. Like I somehow am not susceptible to that because I'm like a stronger moral fiber or something like that. It's just and, the most. And even awful. if they even if they did get to that place in their life because they made bad decisions, it doesn't mean that it, you know. You know, except for the grace of God, your bad decisions oh, couldn't have led there right. as well. Like, it doesn't right, mean your bad decisions are better than theirs. And so, I, well, I'll just I'll just say, as the resident mom in the group, what I related to was that, oh man, that moment you walk into a doctor's office and somebody's got like their dirty snot nosed kid, and then the mom is dirty and she's wearing slippers. Okay, like I am from one of the poorest parishes in the state of Louisiana. I have been in this waiting room, y'all. I have, I have, I have. I have been just as much recoiling, get the dirty germ-filled kid away from me and off the seat and just just 
being right. so repulsed by everything and just wanting to run out of there. And, yeah. And, you know, but the thing is that, you know, as, as we read, as we think about, you know, the good Friday and as you know, at church all throughout good Friday week, there's all these gospels read and parables read and things like that, you know? Um, and those vary depending on your, you know, your tradition. But when you read those, I, I was thinking about how so often Jesus was interacting with, um, the poor people, you know, the, 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 the prostitutes, the, the people who were, you know, thought of as, you know, you people you shouldn't hang out with. And while the Pharisees judged him, it was also so often the disciples who were saying, we should mm-hmm. probably, we should probably go now. <laughs> and Jesus is rebuking them for that. Um, and, yeah. I, and so, you know, I think part of what, that's why this gets under our skin. It, on the one hand, it is terrible. The things that she's saying, like those things should get under our skin because they're evil. But on the other hand, there's the evil that is within us all the time. And that we constantly have to be asking, you know, Christ to cleanse us of, um, regardless of whether we're saying the actual evil things that she says in the right. story. Right. Do the two of you feel like uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something here as I read the story? I judge Mrs. Turpin so hard, and and maybe it's because I I feel those same temptations that I'm just like thinking to myself as I read the story. Glad I'm not Mrs. Turpin. I would never. Well, we judge room. what we're afraid of being, right? It's true. And, and it's true yeah. that I wouldn't go into a waiting room and say those things out loud, but it doesn't mean I wouldn't be thinking that white trash woman over there with the dirty kid and the slippers really should have put some shoes on. Well, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like, I think this is a common thing with parents. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Um, but you, you see people whose kids are bad and you can't help but judge the other parents. like you're, or, you, or even if just kind of like very slightly in a moment before you catch yourself or where you're like, man, I'm glad my kids aren't behaving like that. And then you realize, well, yeah, my kids were behaving like that on the way to church. <laughs> so um, anyway. I was at a restaurant one time and there was a, a kid behind us. I was sitting with my buddy Bobby. Bobby. He's got three kids. and Kind of wish his name had been Body. Yeah. Uh, there's this kid that was behind us just, you know, loud and fussing. And I turned at Bobby, kind of looking to commiserate a little bit. You know, like, oh, Bobby, can you believe the parents of those kids? And Bobby kind of saw that look, and he said, maybe you should go tell them how to do it better, Tim. It's <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> he read my look exactly right. I was just totally judging the parents. And he was like, you have no idea what it's like, buddy. Just, just try it someday. But on the flip side, and I said this as a parent of young kids again, if if someone had gone into that waiting room that that is in this story and had offered you know help or not not been judgmental or if someone had if if someone had offered I don't know I don't know how this works without being you know judgmental in the other way like where you don't need to help someone and then they get offended because you're offering something for them because they feel like you you know what I'm saying but mm. if someone had offered a word of encouragement or whatever. When, when someone says, you know, Oh, my kids have been far worse than that before. Like somehow that, that helps when someone says that to you. Like if your friend who also has kids comes up to you and says that you feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know what I'm saying. Right. I don't know. No, I agree with that. I, I lost complete that. track of what I was saying. Midwest. Did you also notice in the waiting rooms though, that everyone is being judgmental, right? Yeah, Every, yeah, there's this yeah, jockeying true. in the hierarchy. I mean, the white trash woman is so, 
aware of her place in the hierarchy too and it's constantly trying to find someone to put under her well i'm glad i'm not a lunatic i'm glad i'm not fat and she's she's saying these things to mrs turpin that's very like you you and i get it we get it you know she's doing this we thing and mrs turpin's all like no it's not we we are not on the same level here and even the mother of jockeying the mother of the daughter who will end up attacking turpin she even gives this this very side, um, this, this, how do you say it? She gives a rebuke to her daughter kind of in a roundabout fashion. Some people we know could be more grateful for all of the things that their parents have provided for them. Do you guys remember this section that I'm mm-hmm, talking about? Mm-hmm. She's even putting her own daughter kind of in a position where she can – Oh, well, listen, that line about just because you're ugly doesn't mean you have to act ugly. I, I swear, to, my grandmother wrote this story, y'all. Like, <laughs> and then, I of course, heard that. the white trash woman fervently says, I thank God I ain't a lunatic. So everyone can find something to to be yep. glad that yeah. they're not like someone else. Yep. <clears throat> is hey, Mary guys... Grace being judgmental of Mrs. Turpin? That's just what I was going to go to is Mary Grace. Like, what do we make of her? Is she being judgmental toward Mrs. Turpin? I mean, the means of grace in these books are not attractive people. It's not like Uh, she's got it all sorted out in good guys and bad guys. And Mary Grace, I think, is clearly supposed to be a Flannery O'Connor type character, right? She's the the college-educated person who's observing everything and then throwing the book at you. But she paints herself as hideously ugly. You know what's interesting? Ralph Wood refers to her, since you said judgment. I noted that Ralph Wood refers to her as... An avenging angel of judgment. Yeah. Which I think is really, you know, there is a certain sort of judgment that does need to happen, right? There's a certain sort of judgment yeah. that everyone is going to face. Oh. Yes, That's a yes. great description. An and avenging it, angel of judgment. Because she has both of those characteristics, doesn't she? There's something, despite all the descriptions of her poor complexion, her poor posture... There's something angelic about her. She seems well, to Well, Mrs. Turpin kind of... feels like Mary Grace sees right through her. Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah. It, there, is, there definitely does seem like something more going on about her, right? Well, yeah, and then the one thing that she says is, go back to hell where you came from. Oh, like, that's, that's oh interesting. Pretty avenging angel right there, right? Do you that's do the you condemnation. Th- do you think she's it's almost like she's condemning a demon within Miss and casting out a demon even oh, more yeah. even more than like she's that. judging um even more than she's judging Mrs. Turpin herself this like she's it's casting It's an exorcism it. not a not a judgment. That's interesting. I mean I don't know that I would say that that's what O'Connor was going for but or I mean there's certainly something there going on judging wise. It's a spiritual realm thing. This isn't like Julian's mother in the first story we read. This is, you know, where this was an offended mother who just is offended and hits the other woman. This isn't like that. It's like Mary Grace isn't just like put off by Mrs. Turpin. There's something else going on here. Yeah. Oh, she just bores into Mrs. Turpin. I mean, that's part of the power of the story is. Oh, yeah. I just felt Mary Grace's gaze on me the whole time. Did you guys feel like that? Like, I thought O'Connor just does a brilliant job of never letting her gaze leave mrs turpin and even when mrs turpin is talking to the other kind of high class lady we still have this kind of like 
feeling on the back of our neck, Mary Grace sees us. She's still watching us. Oh, yeah. And the fact that she's described in such grotesque terms and the faces she's making are so grotesque, you know, it definitely makes you uncomfortable as you're reading it. Hey, let's turn to the part where she hits her. I want to read that passage and I want to read the then I want to read the um, the uh, vision and we Apocalypse. Have, you know, yeah, yeah, we're running into up to on an hour. So let's let's, let's talk okay. about these. Um, and in particular, let's start in my book. It's on 205. So it's about 13 pages shy of the end. And let's begin with where it says, it never hurt anyone to smile. Mrs. Turpin okay, that's says four ninety nine that. for us, Tim. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, let's... Um, um, let's... Angelina, why don't you just start there and read for a bit, and then Tim, you read for a bit, and then I'll read for a bit. We'll read like okay. we'll read about a page and a half here. I think I think would be good. So maybe for about three to five minutes or something. Th- we're each going to read a page and a half. No, 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 no total. No. So I'll just total. Okay. I'll just toss it over to Tim at a certain point. All right. Okay. Yeah. It never hurt anyone to smile, Mrs. Turpin said. It just makes you feel better all over. Of course, the lady said sadly, but there are just some people you can't tell anything to. They can't take criticism. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got clawed. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you, she cried aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. What a juxtaposition. Yeah. Stop there for a second because it's interesting that we don't have like this whole the girl winds up. Yeah. And yeah. So it's all from Mrs. Turpin's perspective that she's had in this like what almost ecstatic moment of love and joy and gratitude. Right. She snapped right out of it. She didn't even see it coming. She just feels it. Yeah. She thinks. Yeah. She thinks she's having this like um, this moment like where it's this Mrs. Greenleaf moment, right? Yeah. It's that same kind of like expression of her face. But in the midst of that, well, it seems like she should be, um, it seems like she should be having this ongoing spiritual moment and like it is meaning something. She gets actually snapped out of this supposed spiritual moment by uh-huh. the avenging angel of judgment hitting her on the head. Yes. Can I, can I just say something? I don't want to make it too long about just this technique of going from, of disrupting the main flow, this kind of moment of joy or of seeming joy that Miss Turpin is experiencing. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you. She, she cried aloud. No preparation. O'Connor just stabs us with. Yes. The book struck her directly over her left eye. I was reading um, another book I love. David and I love uh, Cormac McCarthy. In the second book in his trilogy, the crossing he has this line this this character is running away from a gunman and we think he's escaped and then okay and so the narrative is going on we think the guy's safe and then just like o'connor does here with the book struck her directly over the left eye mccarthy writes this line his shirt belled out redly and i read it and i thought Wait, what? And I had to go back and I read all of the like preparation for it. And then I read again, his shirt belled out redly. And I was like, this, 
doesn't make any sense. And so do you guys, can you guys see what just happened in that narrative? He got shot in the back and the blood came from his front and belled the shirt out, his shirt, like a bell out. Anyway, I just, as an admirer of the technical parts of Right. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's the kind of technique that it can really leave a, a reader confused. You know, yeah, my kids, it, my, my kids would read books like that, and they would say, "I don't understand what just happened." I would always say, "Just keep reading, and you'll figure." Because it's not the kind of thing you can go back and read and be like, "What just happened?" You have to just keep going. And just like when something terribly painful happens to us. It's almost always accompanied with, with disorientation. Yes, exactly. No, and that's the perfect technique. She doesn't know what just happened to her. Right, well, she okay. doesn't know. And, it, and to her mind, it did just come out of nowhere. Well, keep reading. Finish, let's finish that paragraph then because it's, it, okay. she it talks struck, about that. It struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing across the table toward her, howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. She heard the mother cry out and Cloud shout, Whoa! There was an instant when she was certain that she was about to be in an earthquake. So that speaks to that, right? The idea that yes. an earthquake just comes out of nowhere. you know, And just shakes disaster. everything up. Yep. And so there's, there's, a, there's a real sense in which there is a spiritual earthquake going on here, right, within her. And then also, on mm. the other hand, that speaks to the idea of the suddenness of it. So it's it's meaning that that metaphor that she's using there is meaningful in multiple ways, which is the mark yes. of a great metaphor used by a great writer. Hey, Tim, pick it up there. All at once, her vision narrowed and she saw everything as if it were happening in a small room far away or as if she were looking at it all through the wrong end of a telescope. Claude's face crumpled and fell out of sight. The nurse ran in, then out, then in again. Then the gangling figure of the doctor rushed in out of the inner door. Magazines flew this way and that as the table turned over. The girl fell with a thud, and Mrs. Turpin's vision suddenly reversed itself, and she, sh- and she saw everything large instead mm-hmm. of small. The eyes of the white, trashy woman were staring hugely at the floor. Then the girl, held down on one side by the nurse and on the other by her mother, was wrenching and turning in their grasp. The doctor was kneeling astride her, trying to hold her arm down. He managed, after a second, to sink a long needle into it. Mrs. Turban felt entirely hollow, except for her heart, which swung from side to side, as if it were agitated in a great empty drum of flesh. It's really interesting that O'Connor, Some... that O'Connor makes that par- that just a standalone sentence by itself. Uh-huh. A paragraph by itself, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like one sentence paragraph, and it's completely. She could have left it as part of the previous, previous paragraph. Yeah, for... but that sentence fits your idea that something has been cast out of her because she's empty. Oh, now. it does, Angelina. That's a great mm, point. Hollow, yeah. Hmm. Go on. Somebody that's not busy, call for the ambulance. The doctor said in an offhand voice. Young doctors adopt for terrible occasions. Mrs. Turpin could not have moved a finger. The old man who had been sitting next to her skipped nimbly into the office and made the call, for the secretary seemed to, still seemed to be gone. Claude, Miss Turpin called. He was not in his chair. He knew she must. She knew she must jump up and find him, but she felt like someone trying to catch a train in a dream when everything moves in slow motion, and the faster you try to run, the slower you go. Here I am, 
in a suffocated voice, very unlike Claude's, said. He was doubled up in a corner and on the floor, pale as paper, holding his leg. She wanted to get up and go to him, but she could not move. Instead, her gaze, her gaze was drawn slowly downward to the churning face on the floor, which she could see over the doctor's shoulders. The girl's eyes stopped rolling and focused on her. They seemed, they seemed a much lighter blue than before, as if a door that had been tightly closed behind them was now open to admit light and air. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared, and her powerful mo. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared, and her power of motion returned. She leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce, brilliant eyes. There was no doubt in her mind that the girl did not know. Excuse me, that the girl did know her, knew her in some intense and personal way, beyond time and place and condition. What you got to say to me? She asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting, as if for a revelation. The girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Her voice was low but clear. Her eyes burned for this her eyes burned for a moment as if she saw with pleasure that her message had struck its target. Keep reading the next two lines. Mrs. Turban sank back in her chair. After a moment the girl's eyes closed and she turned her head wearily to the side. Okay. So Dr. Rose, you can, you can stop there. Yeah. So it's so interesting what you got to say to me. The woman says she asked hoarsely, but she doesn't say it with the sort of, um, physical, uh, looming way that she was saying everything earlier with, you know, she had this confidence, this pride about her. She says it hoarsely and then she holds her breath as if she's waiting in anticipation. And, and it says she's waiting for a revelation. She's, there's something about her that's open to that. Um, uh-huh. So like she's something it's been cast out of her. And then of course it says the girl looks at her, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog, she whispered. Her voice was low mm. and clear. And like the girl raises her head. And then when she says that, then Mrs. Turpin sinks back into her chair. And then the girl uh-huh. puts her head to the side almost as if she's passed out because she's exhausted. Like that whole, mm. the whole physicalness of what's going on there. Well, yeah, and her thrashing so... around on the floor, that feels, that feels so like an exorcism, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, and of course, being Catholic, um, she probably, you, you know, would have heard lots of stories about that sort of thing and that priests doing exorcisms and things like that. Mm. Um, that was that was. But probably... it comes up. It comes up again later, a little bit too, when she's yeah. watering and 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 she says that angry thing to God, and then it said for a second the the water spray made a snake like shape. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, that's okay. Let's go read. We don't, you know we're over. We're at one off an hour and five minutes. So let's go um, and read the the vision part so we can, you know. Um, let's start. Let's start with she. Okay, let's start with read the last two pages or so. I know it's a lot of reading to the listeners, but hopefully people are able to follow along. Um, Mrs. Turpin stood there. Well, yeah, there's the um, pig parlor commanded. Let's do the part where it says, why me? She rumbled. Okay. And let's. 
Um, okay, I'll, I'll read this next part, and then I'll have you guys pick up. I guess it's my turn. Why me, she rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to, and break my back to the very to the bone every day working, and do for the church. She appeared to be the right-sized woman to command the arena before her. <laughs> <laughs> how am I a hog, she demanded. Exactly how am I like them? And she, dra- she jabbed the stream of water at the shoats. There was plenty of trash there. It didn't have to be me. If you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then, she railed. You could have made me trash, or a... Uh, N-word. If trash is what you wanted, why didn't you make me trash? She shook her fist with the hose in it. Like the interesting thing is here, like these are less, these are more searching questions than judgmental questions. Um, it seems like to me anyway. She shook her fist with the hose in it, and a watery snake appeared momentarily in the air. I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy. She growled, lounge about the sidewalks all day drinking root beer, dip snuff and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. Or you could have made me a N-word. It's too late for me to be a N-word, she said with deep sarcasm. But I could act like one. Lay down in the middle of the road and stop traffic, roll on the ground. So she's searching, but like there's this lingering poison mm-hmm. poison in her, right? And if, like and like the water it's like the water and the hose thing I think is really interesting because the water is coming out and water purifies and all that, but it's coming out of this hose and it, as mm-hmm. all this poison seems to be coming out of her at the end yes, here. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, and also, I just want to point out as we read this next section, all of the purple, red, purple, red, purple, red. We've seen that in so many stories. Yeah. Oh, man. This last page is tons of purple and red. What was I just reading recently about purple? Oh, man. Because yeah, I still don't know what it means, but it's everywhere. Well, purple, I, red, purple, red. The, the, oh, man. Isn't it? No, it's in, um, oh, I know what it is. I, it's when uh, Jesus is crucified, they put a purple robe on him. Oh, of course. I have no idea if that means anything related to this whatsoever, but um, there is something, you know, I think the purple is also a color of the temple, but anyway. Um, in well, it's the, a nice Good Friday moment, all right. Yeah. In the deepening light, which is, huh, this is late afternoon, okay. So in the deepening light, everything was taking on a mysterious hue. The pasture was growing a peculiar glassy green, and the streak of highway had turned lavender. Uh, she braced herself for a final assault and this time her voice rolled out over the pasture. So it is like there's a fight going on here, right? The, the idea of the final assault. Go on, she yelled. Call me a hog. Call me a hog again. From hell. Call me a warthog from hell. Put that bottom rail on top. There, there, there'll still be a top and a bottom. I butchered that, but it's hard to say. A garbled echo returned to her. A final surge of fury shook her, and she roared, Who do you think you are? The color of everything field and crimson sky burned for a moment with a transparent intensity the question carried over the pasture and across the highway and the cotton field and returned to her clearly like an answer from beyond the wood she opened her mouth but no sound came out of it a tiny truck uh, well i'm gonna skip that paragraph just and then we'll go to the next one yeah mrs turpin stood there her gaze fixed on the highway all her muscles rigid until in five or six minutes the truck reappeared returning she waited until it had time to turn into their ro- own road. Then, like a monumental statue coming to life, and this is like a very Narnian thing, right? When Aslan breathes life into the statues that the White Witch had turned the animals into, she bent her head slowly and gazed, as if through the very heart of mystery, down into the pig parlor at the hogs. They had all settled all in one corner around the old sow who was grunting softly. 
a red glow suffused them. They appeared to pant with a secret life. Until the sun slipped behind the, the tree line, Mrs. Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them, as if she were absor absorbing some abysmal, life-giving knowledge. At last she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic, hier hieratic and profound. A vision, visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Angelina, it's your turn. Why don't you finish it out for us? Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black inward and white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything, and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Man, that's so good. It's really good. Mm. Even hey. their virtues were being burned away. Oh, isn't that it though? Isn't isn't that isn't that it also. about the Christian life? You know, is that we come to it thinking we got we got to get rid of our vices, and we're really faced with the fact that we have to get rid of our virtues because mm -hmm. we're so disordered, right? We we're so disordered in our souls. The things that we think are good about us are probably the things leading us to perdition. It's so interesting that she's looking down, right? And as the life comes into her, um, as the, she becomes a statue coming to life, um, and then at last she lifts her head, and there's a purple streak in the sky, and she raises her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture. How do you say that word? Is it higher? I have no idea. And profound. And the idea of like her re lifting up her hands is worshipful, but also like it seems kind of priestly mm -hmm. which is which the is paragraph you skipped though I, I i do think is important for what happens next because she imagines that we're all just so small and we could all die any moment and it's well, when, true, when yeah. faced with the idea of death death is the great equalizer and that's what she realizes we're, we're all just like his truck is like a toy the universe is so immense and we're so fragile and we're all gonna die and and in death that's when you know the social hierarchy has been flipped around and it's not, it's not, it's, it's when faced with death, as we've seen with so many of these characters that they begin to, to have some insight. Hmm. So she has a little bit of a death and a rebirth there. She's faced with the death and then she comes back to life. Yeah. And of course there's something very 
Dante and therefore very medieval about this vision very. too. There, the the idea of their faces burning off of them as they're going up—that's purgatory, right? That's yep. Dante's purgatory. That that your 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 vices and your virtues are all burned off of you as you're being prepared to enter heaven. Yeah, I was gonna say it's not it's it's not a vision of the inferno or paradis, par, paradiso. It's a it's a vision of purgatory of purgatorio. Yes, and oh, not yeah. to get too caught up in the theology of that because that's not really what Dante's purgatorio is is about. It's an nor is it O'Connor's point. Exactly. The, the point of that is an allegorical representation of what we must do to prepare our souls for heaven. Right. And, and one of those is, is a, you know, a, trying to have true virtue. And so casting off the false virtues, getting rid of the vices and yes. attaining true virtue. Hmm. Yeah. And of course, she ha- th- her virtues were those things that she took so much pride in. Yes, exactly. You know, she she probably was involved in her church, as she claimed. She probably was pretty helpful. You know, her virtues and, and her vices were so tied thing together. That she though. brought ice water to the people that worked on the farm. You know, like those are not right. bad things. Right. It's just you know her attitude about it. Yeah. That this well, this this act of kindness separated her from everyone else in her mind. Right. She's so much better. Hey, I give ice water to my workers. Yeah, it's really. I've heard. I've heard people talk about the idea of O'Connor's arguing. Like her stories are kind of arguing for the idea of theosis, which of course is a whole other conversation. But if if that's the case, then um, if if she is arguing about the idea of theosis, then then that's that's what this scene is 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 describing here. But then of course you get the the idea that the invisible cricket choruses have struck up. But what she hears are the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Um, and that's so now she has that new insight. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and that's and and again we get the we we end the story with a representation of the spiritual and the physical being interlocked again, like a, this mm-hmm. this constant re- thing that O'Connor is constantly returning to. Yeah. Because the, the story begins with story. tons of descriptions of the physical, right? So then, we, and then we move into the whole, whole weird realm of, you know, mystical epiphanies and visions, and then we go back to the physical. But she's tied it together with the spiritual. Oh, that's good. Yeah, she brings it all together. Mm, that's good. Start with the physical, get into the mystical, get tied together. Um, eh, that's good. Good job. Good read. I like that. <laughs> good job by you. And you, I love that. Casting out the demon thing. I'm excited about that. Um, Well, let's, we've got, we've, you know, we all have, it's Good Friday, so we've got church services and things like that. And um, the day is, the the day is ending here soon. So, and as Tim just, just sent me a message on Skype saying, I got a jam soon. Um, Tim, let's, uh, let's go with some final thoughts here before we wrap up. Do you have, do you have your 30 seconds of final thoughts? My 30 seconds of, Final thoughts are I'm sad that this is the penultimate. Wait, is this the penultimate story? No, we got in the collection? two more after this. Okay, good. I was starting to get sad. I was starting to miss Flannery O'Connor. I know. I'm feeling that too. I feel like my mind reorganizes. Do you, you guys feel like, like, like um, I get in the habit of seeing the world the way that she does because we read her so frequently and I've been. And I like that. I really like that. Um, and I'm starting to get a little bit sad that I'm gonna, my head is gonna be out of her stories in a few weeks. Well, hopefully, the things that we read next will be similarly orienting, anyway. Yes. Yes. Angelina, any final thoughts? Uh, I, I think my final thought is that 
I'm, I'm so encouraged with the feedback we're getting in the Facebook group, especially because just a few weeks ago, it seemed like half the group was saying, I'm out. <laughs> but Angelina was sending of- us private messages despairing. I was totally despairing. People got, ooh, fragile, fragile over here. But yeah, I was I'm thoroughly totally enjoying it. You were. David was rubbing his hands in glee going, the, the ratings have never been better. I'm crying going, we failed them. We failed our listeners. <laughs> they all hate Flannery O'Connor now. I was taking it so hard. But I just want to say, I'm really proud of you guys for hanging in there because I'm so excited now to see the messages saying, all right, I kept going and I think I'm getting it now and I love her. And people posting, I'm a fan now. This is just this just made my my week here. This is it's, this is very exciting because I was taking it personally, like you know, I was gonna meet my maker and there was gonna be Flannery just you know waving her finger at me like, well, you screwed that up. Tisk tisk tisk. Exactly. Well, Tim, we're gonna have to take Angelina on some similar journeys through with books that she claims she doesn't like. So this is true. I'm open. Uh, I'll try to be open. I will lean forward and everything. I do. Oh yes, nice. I do think that. In many cases, the best, most challenging authors, sometimes those things go together, um, they do take you, – you've got to keep reading. And, and yeah. 25 pages or even 125 pages of a few short stories you know, that you've read once is, is not going to get you the whole picture. And, and so, yeah, I, I, it's really cool that people are reading along with us. And um, I totally understand the people who did give up. Like if you just felt like I need to come back to the next thing that you guys read on Close Reads, that's cool. It doesn't – you know, it doesn't bother us or doesn't we don't bother understand. David, but he can't speak for me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. To echo, Angel- to echo your point, though, Angelina, I've been trying to follow along a little bit more attentively on the Facebook feed. And a lot of our readers have really thoughtful insights. It's yeah, really y'all disturbing. are kind of, y'all are like annoyingly smart sometimes. So. I, oh, I feel that too. I was like, I don't know if there's anything I can say on the show now. Like, <laughs> People are over there chapter and versing us on these stories now. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably read something people are less enthused about, though, next. Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, what would it be? Danielle Steele have a new album out. New album. A new album. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same. We're just going to download it off of iTunes. Danielle Steele 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, everybody. Um, we really hope that everyone had a wonderful easter obviously this is you're listening to this on monday or later but um you know if if hopefully you're having a great easter season um thank you so much for listening uh for continuing to listen to not just these podcasts on flannery o'connor but those some of you have been with us on this grocery journey for a long time um so thank you for that um Thank you to Roman Roads Media, of course, for making this episode possible. And don't forget to head over to the Facebook the Facebook page, you know, the Cersei Facebook page, uh, and leave a comment there saying which Roman Roads unit from uh, their Old Western Culture series you would like to win. You can see the whole catalog over at RomanRoadsMedia.com. And, um, of course, next week we will be reading uh, a Parker's Back, which is another super fascinating um, uh, story that O'Connor wrote towards the end of her life. And then after that, we are on to Judgment Day, which was the unfinished story. And then after that, we will do another Q&A episode on Flaming O'Connor. Which so. terrifies me because people ask asking good questions. <laughs> My thinking is what I'm going to try to do is sort it to where we choose one question about each story. Um, if, if we maybe, maybe we won't do that, but that might be a good way of organizing the questions. Um, and, and kind of guiding the conversation. It might not, Here's might my not question. be worth you it. You guys but... can answer it. What does the purple and red mean? <laughs> <laughs> Someone do some research. Um, but we are out of time for this week. But again, seriously, thanks so much to everyone who's been listening. It's it's um it's been really fun to see the audience grow, but also just the audience become so engaged and you know challenging us and 
um, getting excited along with us about books that we love anyway. So really, you're just listening to us talk about things we wanted to talk about as, you know, anyway. So uh, thanks for thanks for putting up with and allowing us to do that. Um, Absolutely. Well, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, uh, I'm David Curran saying farewell here on Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. We will talk to you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,